Welcome into a new Buff Stampede Radio. I'm Adam Munster Tiger, the publisher of BuffStampede.com. I hope you've listened in and enjoyed some of our catching up with podcasts in recent months. I had a chance to catch up with Thaddeus Washington, Tim Lanat, Rick Gamboa, Ryan Moeller, and James Stefano. Some great conversations with those forever buffs. Really recommend the Ryan Moeller episode. That guy went on quite the journey from really an unrecruited walk-on with coaches on the CU staff telling him that he's never going to play to being an all-conference guy. Uh, Again, that was a cool episode. Anyway, we're a week away from Pac-12 Media Day. I'll be out in Los Angeles to cover that. And we're a week and a half away from CU's first preseason practices. I wanted to take this opportunity to see what questions CU fans had and do a solo podcast before really the madness of camp gets underway. I threw it out to both the Inside the Herd board on buffstampede.com as well as Twitter for questions. Got a lot of questions. I can't get to all of them, but I'm going to try to tackle as many as I can. So let's dive in. You've got mail. At MambaMental714 on Twitter asked, which players do we think will have a chance to make an impact on the field this year who maybe have spent a couple of years developing? Also, predict on how Sanford and Colorado use the tight end. Who are two or three behind Brady Russell? Thanks. In terms of the players that had been developing for a couple of years and are expected to have an impact on the field this year, the first player that comes to mind is Alvin Williams. He came in as an early enrollee in January of 2020, was buried on the depth chart at inside linebacker early in his college career, and is coming off a really strong spring on the edge for the Buffs. He got his feet wet on special teams, played a few defensive snaps late last season after Joshka Gustav went down and uh, was moved to outside linebacker, which is the position he played in high school, more of a natural fit for him. We've talked about it on our top bus countdown. The competition is thick with that edge group, arguably the deepest position on the team. But it really seems like things have come together for Alvin Williams this offseason. I'd be surprised if we don't see a heavy dose of him on the field this season. Marvin Hamm is another player that has been developing on defense, went through some growing pains with an increased role at Mo linebacker, a hybrid inside linebacker role last season, ran with the first team defense this spring. The Mo isn't going to be on the field all the time, but you should expect to see Marvin Ham play a pretty substantial role on the defense this fall. More of a dark horse candidate would be Jalen Stryker. He transferred in from the JUCO ranks, Independence Community College in 2020. Played a little on special teams, but really hasn't had much of an impact at CU since he came in. He was pretty vocal on Twitter talking about the fact that he needed to do a better job of dedicating himself to getting better. And uh, it, it does seem like he's got a different mindset this offseason. He got moved to the safeties room, played Nickelback this spring. I'm not expecting Jalen Strucker to start, but he's one of those guys that you kind of forget about that's been around now for a little while that could have a role. On offense, I'd probably start with Austin Johnson. He battled injuries early on, had a ruptured Achilles, which is always a tough injury to come back from. It, it takes Time for guys to really fully work the rust off coming back from that type of injury. Uh, he's going to be in a battle with Noah Fenske to start at center. So that's one guy on offense that could have a pretty big role that's kind of been more in the incubator here the last few years. And Caleb Fourier at tight end would be another one if he can stay healthy. 
that's been an issue for him the last year, but he showed quite a bit of promise for the future last spring when he was healthy. Mamba Mental asked about tight end, so that kind of segues me into that part of his question. Yeah, the, the tight end is going to be a big part of this new offense under Mike Sanford, and you've got the tight ends coach, Clay Patterson, who's the passing game coordinator. So you're, you're going to see two tight ends on the field at the same time quite a bit based on everything we heard coming out of spring ball. Behind Brady Russell, you've got Eric Olson coming off an impressive spring. Dude looks the part. Looks like an NFL tight end now as a second-year player. Had a big spring. Like I mentioned, I mentioned Fourier. You also got to throw in Austin Smith into that discussion. He's got a chance to get on the field speedier, but pretty raw tight end at this point. Austin Smith strikes me as a guy that we're going to be talking about quite a bit in 2023 and 2024. So we'll see how big of a role he has this year. But Olsen and Fourier would probably be the top two candidates to have a role behind Brady Russell at tight end. At Cole Cook, 2578 on Twitter asked, who steps up and makes an impact this season, offense, defense, and special teams? Similar question, but without the caveat of it being a player that's been kind of in development mode the last few years. We talked about it a lot in the spring, but the light bulb seems to have finally turned on for Daniel Arias at receiver. And I know this is a guy that has looked apart from day one and has not really lived up to those expectations. But based on everything we saw and heard this spring, it does seem like he's going to have a big role on offense for the Buffs. Defensively, Naeem Rodman on the defensive line seems to have made another jump. I mean, you've even got to throw in Terrence Lang there, going from having to move between playing inside and outside, now strictly a defensive end in the new defensive scheme. We've been waiting for five years now for him to really break out and be an all-conference player. This is it for him. And I do expect to see a more consistent Terrence Lang on defense, especially in this new scheme, like I mentioned. They need Trevor Woods to be that guy that steps up and makes plays and makes a big impact at safety. On special teams, I guess I would probably throw Maurice Bell out there. I I like his chances of regaining his kick return form during the shortened 2020 season after missing last season with a torn Achilles. He was really close to breaking some of those runs back in 2020 and is finally back healthy. So uh, you've got Nico Reed as well. Uh, We've only seen him return one kickoff and that went for a touchdown. So uh, you've got a couple guys there that that can make a make a big impact in the return game on special teams at Cole cook 2578 on Twitter. Also asked a few more questions. How do you see the new offense performing this year as a whole? Does the defense continue to improve over under 3.5 wins this year? Are you taking the over or under? Like Brian and I have said in some of our analysis videos, the the bar is set, has been set uh, pretty low for the offense coming off last season. So any production that looks somewhat consistent would be a step up. I mean, they ranked 129th out of 130 FBS teams in total offense in 2021, just pathetic production that made it really, really difficult for CU fans to tune in to watch this team play last year. Sanford's offense sounds pretty complex, so there's got to be some learning curve associated with that. 
I guess my expectation would be that CU's offense gets better, but still kind of ranked somewhere around, I don't know, 80th nationally, whereas the defense is similar in terms of production in 2022 compared to 2021. You lose Landman, Carson Wells, Christian Gonzalez, Makai Blackman. You know, that hurts. That's a lot of really good players that are no longer on your defense. I guess you could even throw Mustafa Johnson in there. You did get a proven linebacker transfer in Josh Chandler Samito. You've got a deep edge group. So what I think projects to be a pretty solid front seven, some young, solid defensive backs, you're lacking depth in the secondary, particularly at safety. I try to put all this together. You know, I think the disappointment of the four and eight season, we forget the defense actually played decent football last year. They had a couple clunkers, but by and large, they were good enough on defense for CU to be a bowl team in 2021. They just were on the field far too much because of the offense's inability to move the chains. So with some improvement on offense, a similar defensive output, I'd probably lean towards the over in terms of the the win total. That said, I'm naturally a a glass half full person. The scheduling is certainly daunting. I, I wouldn't load up on the over. But, yeah, I, I guess if I had to pick a side on that, I would say over three and a half wins. At Scobuffs Nation on Twitter had two questions. Number one, Carl Durrell made a comment that his recruiting playbook is the same as McCartney's 20 years ago. How would you assess recruiting under Carl Durrell to date? I took Carl Durrell's comments there to mean more they're following the same blueprint in terms of where they're recruiting. Colorado, Texas, California, which is really no different than any of the coaches since McCartney. That comment rubbed some folks the wrong way. I think that has more to do with the fact they're coming off a four and eight season and people are going to nitpick everything he says. I mean, but I do get it. Obviously, the charisma McCartney had as a recruiter is not being duplicated by the head coach of Boulder right now. But Jarrell and his staff seem to have a good eye for talent finding some really good players that were a little lower rated, but you know, they're not making the big waves or drawing much national hype. If they can develop these players and keep them in Boulder, which is obviously a huge task because of the transfer portal and one they struggled with this past winter. If you can keep the bulk of your players in Boulder, you can win with the players he's bringing in. I actually like the depth of his classes. You don't have a few blue chip recruits at the top drawing the headlines. But like I said, you've got depth. Tyron Taylor, Nico Reed, Ryan Williams, Austin Smith, and Cole Becker were actually the five lowest rated signees in their 2021 class. That was Darrell's first class. And all five of those are good players. We'll see how the 2022 class pans out early on in the coming months. But you've already had... Owen Carey, Josh Wiggins, and Travis Gray, who were early enrollees, and all those guys looked apart, did well, their first spring ball at CU. This is something that it's too small of a sample size at this point to have a definitive remark here. Second question from at Skybuffs Nation. What's the most likely outcome for CU with realignment discussions as they stand today? Despite what some random folks are putting out on Twitter, the most likely outcome is for CU to stay in the Pac-12, which which it sounds like they will 
get back to 12 in the conference at at least one school from Texas, which I'd assume SMU is the most likely ad. We've heard reports out there that San Diego State uh, is likely to be added as well. I do think there is some posturing going on with Oregon and Washington trying to take a larger piece of the pie. It makes sense those two are going for that, given that they feel like they're keeping the conference together. But the four corner schools can threaten to leave in order to keep that split even. It, it feels like that's kind of where it's going. It's headed towards right now, again, posturing between the, the corners, four corner schools and Oregon and Washington. If Oregon and Washington are hell-bent on trying to force an uneven revenue split and the projected TV money in the Big 12 would be on par or more than the pack. I would personally vote for the Big 12 if I'm running the show at CU. The uneven revenue split is what basically pushed CU to the Pac-12 a dozen years ago. Uh, but the question about what the most likely scenario is, and that remains staying in the Pac-12 as I record this the afternoon of July 21st. Big Sky Buff on BuffStampede.com asked, with the news that Pac-12 and Big 12 merger talks are dead, don't you think the Buff should join the Big 12? with the other three corner schools. I do, but I don't have a vote. I've already gone on the record as saying I don't like the wine and cheese feel of the Pac-12. There's some good fan bases in the conference, but just overall the culture of Pac-12 football sucks in my opinion. And I'm fully aware it would look different going back to the Big 12 than it was when CU was in the conference before without Nebraska, Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri. And yes, the, the road trips in terms of the city or town you're going to isn't as flashy. It's fun flying into the Bay Area or Seattle for a game, but I miss the feel of hatred between CU and the teams they go up against. You could say, I hate Baylor with a passion. I don't want to join a conference and play them again. And I'd say that's exactly why you should want to be in the same conference again, because you hate them. There's some animosity I've seen between CU fans and maybe in Arizona State in football or Arizona in USC in basketball. But generally, it, it's been hard to find much passion and hatred in these matchups since you join the Pac-12. That said, if you're CU, you have to at least be patient and see the end result of the Pac-12 TV negotiations and what that would all look like. There's no reason to make a decision until you have all the information to make an informed decision. You don't have to and should make that call right now. Mile High Crew on BuffStampede.com asked, do you think the uncertainty surrounding the program and the conference will have an impact in recruiting? These kids obviously want to play in the best conferences against the best teams and be seen by more people on national TV. Will more kids end up committing to a program in a more stable conference because this uncertainty surrounds the Pac-12? He hasn't really been competing with USC for recruits anyway. Most of their in-conference recruiting battles have been against Cal, Utah, the Arizona schools, the Washington schools, Oregon State. And those schools are currently in the same boat. So it doesn't really impact recruiting all that much. With NIL, we've seen the gap between the haves and have-nots grow even more. So you might out-evaluate other programs early on, get a Nikhil Bertrand on board as a commit. And this is an example that's played out this recruiting cycle. But 
as soon as Texas A&M, Auburn, Georgia, and Penn State came calling like they did in this case, you're not going to be able to keep him on board. NIL is 10 times more of an issue than conference uncertainty right now. And the conference picture is going to become clear at some point, whereas NIL is going to be an issue going forward because you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. The one saving grace is the halves of college football now in the NIL world still have only so many scholarships and kids are still going to want to play. So if your CU playing time is the currency you're really able to offer. So you're kind of forced to stop fishing in the blue chip pond and better hope to do an amazing job evaluating three-star recruits. Tad Boyle has largely done this on the basketball side. They've landed a few four-star recruits, but even those haven't been the McDonald's All-American or Top 100 types. His program has had success because they've landed the right type of players in the 100 to 200 range. Easier said than done, and at least now his program has recent success in terms of wins and losses and sending players to the pros. That's what Carl Durrell is trying to build on the football side. At RBCU Fan on Twitter asked, Initial thoughts about this recruiting class so far? Who from the current recruits are you most excited about? What positions remain big priorities for this class? They've done a good job of recruiting edge players this cycle. Cam Beiser is a sack machine coming out of Texas. Brady Nassar and Carson Mott are both top 100 California recruits at CU, be it out. Other Pac-12 schools for. Isaiah Harge is a really explosive receiver. Another player you beat out a lot of P5s for. And you keep that St. Thomas Aquinas pipeline flowing. I do like Ryan Staub's quick release, his athleticism as a quarterback addition. Sanford targeted him very early on after taking the job in Boulder. Assuming they hang on to their current 16 commits, their remaining needs, I'm told, are one more running back, another receiver, another offensive lineman, one or two defense alignment, another inside backer, another safety, another cornerback. They plan to take just the one quarterback they have already and the two tight ends they already have on board. They might be done at edge unless best available dictates they take one more, but you're looking at another running back, another receiver, another O-lineman. I would think probably two defense linemen, another inside backer, and again, uh, one player each position in the secondary. Along those lines, original stats on Buff Stampede asked, recruiting continues to go in the wrong direction. Is this staff capable of recruiting at a power five level? Honest question. Given the current landscape of college football with NIL, if you're expecting the Buffs to land top 20 classes, you're simply going to be disappointed. As I stated earlier, I like the depth of these recent classes, and they have won some more Power 5 battles so far this cycle. It does make it more exciting when CU is landing blue chip recruits. And as much as I have loved working for 24-7 Sports and Rivals for the last 19 years, the the blue chippers the Buffs have signed have largely not lived up to expectations. I actually went back and looked at the previous 13 recruiting classes. The Buffs have signed a total of 17 blue chip recruits, and less than half of those ever started a game at CU. You can land quality three-star prospects and win football games. It's just more challenging now with the portal and, and, and trying to keep them and trying to keep CU from being a farm team for schools like Oregon and USC, which we saw this past winter. 
to me, the issue is not necessarily the players Durrell is recruiting right now, but rather can they keep them in Boulder once they have some success? Gambler C asked, we can't know much about a staff's recruiting before signing day, but based on your conversations with the recruits, high school coaches, and others, do you have a sense of how this year's staff compares to recent CU staffs in recruiting, approach, effectiveness, style, etc.? Well, I would push back a little bit there in terms of you actually know a lot before signing day because of the coverage that we do. Now, in terms of how good that class is going to be, yeah, you don't even know that on signing day. You don't know that until a few years down the road. Um, to try to answer his question, I would say it feels pretty similar to McIntyre and his staff, which you know I guess could be perceived as good or bad. But generally, it does feel like the staff has a good eye for talent. It's certainly not flashy recruiting, uh, not similar to Mel Tucker's recruiting in, in that regard because you know, he was able to generate a lot of hype. A lot of it, I guess you could say at this point, was unjustified when you consider, you know, Anishad Clayton. He was a four-star recruit, their top-rated guy in that class. But in all actuality, his recruitment in the end came down to Kansas and CU when he decided. You generate a lot of headlines by bringing in Antonio Alfano, a former number one recruit in the nation. We all know how that played out. Jason Harris did not come close to living up to the hype before he transferred. Jake Ray never played it down before medically retiring. The bottom half of Tucker's 2020 class was pretty much awful. Don't get me wrong, that was a lot of fun from a coverage standpoint, but that was more of a paper tiger class. The new staff hires Darrell made this past offseason have injected some energy into the recruiting side, and they hired Armand Hawkins Jr. to the recruiting staff this week. That was met with wide applause from folks that watched what he did as a recruiter on USC staff. So I'm not trying to spin it here, but the excitement that we had with Mel Tucker was fun and all. Christian Gonzalez was a nice signee, Brendan Rice, but generally it's not as clear-cut as Mel Tucker was a great recruiter as it pertains to that brief stint in Boulder. And Carl Drell is not a great recruiter if you really dive in beyond the hype. Davis Buff on Buff Stampede asked, it seems clear that the NCAA is quickly losing the control they had over college football, which is good. Their approach only worked by limiting the rights of the student athletes. The NCAA's version of NIL does not appear to be enforceable. Do you see Rick George softening his position of siding with the NCAA? And if he sides with the NCAA, essentially limiting the player's ability to get fair market value, how much of an impact will it have on Carl Durrell's ability to recruit and keep talent? Publicly, no, I don't expect Rick George to ever promote a collective, and I'd expect him to always talk about being against it, being an inducement for bringing in players. It does sound like CU will have a little more NIL traction in the future, but certainly not competing on the level of the, the true halves of college football. They don't have the financial booster base for that, but it does sound like there's some things in the works there from the booster side to at least put the buffs in the conversation to be more of a player in terms of NIL than it has in the past. You've seen the hints by some boosters on social media. When actually that kicks in, I don't know. But it, it does sound like there's at least a little bit more in the works than we've had since NIL began. Ugly Rat on Buff Stampede asked, 
Do you think CU lands a higher ranked player this year than is currently committed? So right now, CJ Turner is currently their highest rated commit on the composite. They did have four recruits on campus for an official visit in June with a higher rating currently than Turner. Roger Elderman, Gavin Gowiniger, Smith Snowden, and Mikey Matthews. So to answer that question, yes, I do think CU lands a higher ranked player than is currently committed. Padelec 13 on Buff Stampede asks, what's your opinion and insight on our current recruiting strategy versus what Mel was doing? How do you think it will pay off in the short and long term? I touched on this a bit. Again, there's obviously a lot less hype with Carl Durrell recruiting compared to what Mel Tucker did during his brief stint in Boulder. It certainly could pay off long term, but but again, only if you can keep the program from being a turnstile. You're always going to lose some players to the portal in the current version of college football, but you've got to limit it more than they did this past winter. Otherwise, you're in quicksand and, and constantly feeling a young team. If Tucker thought that he had the resources at CU and, and stayed in Boulder, I'm not saying that it would have backfired, but it wasn't a surefire success story the way maybe we felt it was when he left Michigan State. And conversely, coming off a four and eight season, Carl Durrell is an easy mark for negativity. Understandable. Four and eight's unacceptable. That offense was putrid last season. Uh, but again, I don't think the recruiting is as bad as maybe some folks are making it out to be. At BC Golden 22 on Twitter asked, regardless of who wins the quarterback job, which will presumably be either Lewis or Shrout, if that individual takes strides and winds up as the third or fourth best quarterback in the conference, what do you think this translates to in terms of wins? Third or fourth best in the conference, huh? Okay. Well, I expect C I expect CU's defense to be decent, not great. So if you have the third or fourth best quarterback in the conference, even against a tough schedule, I mean CU would be a bowl team in 2022. Lewis is gonna have to get a heck of a lot better, or Shrout is gonna have to be the best quarterback CU has had in a long time in order for that to happen. I don't think anyone's predicting this as a likely scenario. More likely, I think, is they're better at the position in 2022, but still in the bottom half of the conference in terms of quarterback play. Rocky Nuggets on Buff Stampede asked, what do you make of Lou being in the driver's seat, platitude or traditional CU, doggedly refusing to switch quarterbacks? William Gardner and I actually talked about this when talking about JT Shrout on our Top Buffs Countdown. So I might as well just insert that audio here. JT Shrout was limited during spring ball, but he's full go now this summer. And uh, based on how we all voted, William, it, it's pretty obvious that we all think that he's going to be the starting quarterback. Now, when Carl Durrell met with the media here in mid-July, he said Brendan Lewis is in the driver's seat in that quarterback competition. Do you believe that? Does that give you any pause, make you second guess where you had JT Shrout ranked on your list? No, I mean, I, you know, I had him rated the lowest of the three of us. I, I, I had him 14, you had him 10, and Brian had him six. 
Um, but still, you know, we, we all three had him ahead of Brendan Lewis. And I don't know, I guess the, the first thing I think of is, okay, well, driver's seat. What does that even mean? Frankly, does that mean that you get the, you get the first shot at it? You're going to get the first team reps in the first practice. Who knows? You know, I, I don't think that anybody, I don't think that I know of anybody who thinks that Brendan Lewis is, is, is going to be the starter uh, in that first game. But um, I don't know. I mean, I was just thinking as we started out doing this, this uh, JT Shroud, anything controversial about this guy? He, he hadn't come up in any, any conversations and not because of who he is, but because of the position he plays. And, you know, the old uh, nugget, is that uh, the the most popular quarterback amongst the fans is the backup quarterback. And, you know, the bottom line is uh, Brandon Lewis comes back as a starter. He was a starter last year. So until somebody takes that from him, he still is. Uh, So I guess maybe that, I don't know, maybe that's what Carl Durrell means, but I think everybody pretty much, maybe the word is hopes that Shroud is the starter. I don't know because we haven't seen really enough from Lewis to, to, uh, to think that, uh, he's going to be the guy that leads us. But I think Shroud more than maybe more than anybody else on this top 40 is a guy who with a big season could really elevate this team and, you know, bring several more wins than any other one person that I can think of on the whole team. It's a good point you made about the backup quarterback being so popular because JT Shroud hasn't made a mistake in a game in a CU uniform. And CU fans can reference all the mistakes that Brendan Lewis made last year. So you've got these extremes. You have the CU fans that think it's a guarantee that JT Shroud's going to be the starter. And then you have, uh, you know, kind of if you took Carl Durrell's comments at face value that Brendan Lewis is going to be the guy. Like a lot of things, I think it's somewhere in the middle, right? I do think there is going to be a true quarterback competition, but maybe Carl Durrell just doesn't want to advertise that fact and, and doesn't want you know questions every single day after preseason camp about the quarterback competition. And maybe that's why he phrased it that way. The reason that I had JT Shroud higher than Brendan Lewis is the simple fact that the ball looks different coming out of his hand than a lot of the quarterbacks that have rolled through Boulder during my time on the beat. Uh, the, the knock on JT Shroud coming out of Knoxville when he left Tennessee was sometimes his dis- decision making. And he got the quick hook a couple of times when he got in some games there at Tennessee. So that's that's part of it. And so, uh, yeah, he hasn't made mistakes at CU uniform, but he has in the college game. So yeah. uh, that that's part of it. But there is no denying that he has got elite arm talent. Yeah. You, you kind of look back at it previous quarterbacks in the modern era at CU, Steve Montez and Tyler Hansen had a lot of natural kind of raw ability and they were able to make plays out there. Cody Hawkins looked great on the seven on seven setting. Sefo Lufa was a warrior behind center, but in my opinion, he has a more polished arm and arm talent than those guys did. And that's not the be all end all. Remember Brian White had next level arm talent, but he didn't have it between the years to be a starting quarterback at CU. So uh, there's more that goes into playing quarterback at this level than just having that elite art talent, but Shroud has got it. Uh, the other part of it that we need to throw in this discussion, William, and this is right up your alley, is Shroud is not a, a mobile quarterback. Brennan Lewis is. So if the offensive line is not quite a bit better than it was last year, it might be better to have Brennan Lewis out there at quarterback because Shroud, I'm not calling him a statue back there, but He's going to get hurt if that offensive line doesn't play better. Or, or, or I don't know. You know, the other way of looking at it is, is 
if he's got the arm, does he get rid of the ball faster and doesn't need as much time back there? True. I mean, you know, the, the, you never know what to believe that you hear from coaches or from anybody else. You know, the word is that in, in camp last year that Shrout was clearly the better player and then he got hurt. I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. You weren't there. You didn't see it. Who knows, right? So you, you take your sources and you decide whether you trust them. Um, I think that Shrout's arm, he he may be one of those quarterbacks, and this is not unusual to see. Some some guys those some some guys with that kind of an arm think they can throw whatever they want to throw. And then you find out, you know, you're playing in the SEC, and all of a sudden those defensive backs are NFL level players and they can close that gap instantaneously and you re- and you find out the hard way that uh you know what you can't make those throws you know e- even john elway can't make those throws so maybe he learned something from that i think he was still young and new to the game at tennessee uh hopefully uh, over the last couple of years he's he's uh <clears throat> gained a better understanding has better vision but yeah you know i think uh, uh he is a better quarterback in terms of what you think a quarterback is in the modern game um, than anybody we've seen in a while. And again, you know, like you, like you pointed out, what kind of offensive line we have is going to make a difference. What kind of offense we're running is going to make a difference. And I think that, uh, I think that we're going to see from Sanford a much more quarterback friendly offense than we saw. Well, okay. Let's be honest. Last year's offense wasn't friendly to any position on the field, except the defense, but um, the other team's defense. Uh, But uh, I think we're going to see, the play calling and play design and and concept here that's much more uh, friendly for quarterbacks and so hopefully both of them look better. But uh, the other the other thing we haven't mentioned is also you know if that you know by all accounts that knee is healthy and hopefully it's good to go. Um, but yeah, you know he's another guy. Uh, I, I will keep my sort of fingers crossed watching him play until he's got a few games under his belt. And I know he's not getting hurt, so. Um, lots of things to wonder about with Shrout, but much higher ceiling, perhaps, than Lewis. Uh, and we'll remain. We'll see what happens when they get out there on the field. Go Buffs 87 on Buff Stampede asked, quarterback is obviously the key to our success, but who is winning the battles in the trenches, offensive line or defensive line? Are they each winning practice on different days, or is there a trend? I'm assuming this is based on spring ball because we haven't gotten into camp. And during spring ball, the front seven overall had a better spring from what I heard. In terms of the O-line, I like some of the pieces there, but uh, center is a concern for me with that group going into camp. Moving along, Elrod on Buff Stampede asked, who do you think will get the bulk of the carries to start the season, Fontenot or Deion Smith? Also, which game has the most potential to really springboard the season, TCU or Minnesota. At running back, my prediction would be Alex Fontenot gets about 60% of the carries with Deion Smith, about 30. And then you sprinkle in whichever true freshman between Victor Venn or Anthony Hankerson is coming along quicker. Obviously, Jaylee Stacks is in that group as well, but uh, I'd expect him to continue to be more of a, a fullback guy that they use in short yard situations and then to the other part of his question given that minnesota shut you out and embarrassed you in your home stadium getting a win up there would seemingly do wonders from a psyche standpoint so uh, i guess i would gravitate towards that but 
with TCU being the opener on Friday night on ESPN, first game after a disappointing four and eight season, I don't think uh, there's really a wrong answer between those two. Obviously, you want to get started off on the right foot, but uh, being able to go up to Minnesota and compete after what we saw happen in Folsom Field last year would be uh, just as big, if not bigger. Trevmon28 on Buff Stampede asked, are the Buffs at 84 scholarships on their current roster? Assuming they are, where do you see them using the final scholarship? And I don't see Luke Eckhart listed on the current roster. Has he reported? Uh, correct. CU is currently at 84 scholarships, one under the limit. At this point, I would think the most likely scenario is senior Anthony Lyle gets placed on scholarship for the fall. We'll have to, to wait and see there. And yes, Luke Eckhart is on the team. Not sure what roster you were looking at, but he is on the roster that was given to the media at the Kasadi Classic Golf, the Kasadi Classic Golf Tournament earlier this month. Buffnut1 on Buff Stampede asked, who has Shannon Turley identified as players with leadership characteristics and who's ready to make the biggest leap in on-field productivity this year? What freshmen look the part and are most ready to enter the two deep discussions? In terms of leaders on this team, I'll just list off some guys, I guess. Casey Roddick, Brady Russell, Isaiah Lewis, Robert Barnes, Quinn Perry, Terrence Lang, Naeem Rodman, Jalen Jackson. Those are some of the leaders on the team. We already talked about guys that are going to make a leap on the field this season. To answer the last part there with the freshmen, uh, you'd go to a couple guys that were on campus for spring ball. Owen Carey had a good first spring at linebacker, and Josh Wiggins at cornerback had a really good first spring. Even Jason Oliver looked pretty good at cornerback his first spring at, at CU. So those were a couple of stand-up freshmen to mention now. And those guys have actually gone through some practices, so it's a little bit easier uh, to point them out. I'm sure we'll have more freshmen to mention once we get into camp. Barhang on Buff Stampede asked, After an offseason that saw several of the team's talented and outspoken players transfer out to perceived greener pastures, there seems to be a strong coming together by those who remained. At least that seems to be the constant message in many of the player interviews. One, do you sense this strong team unity is real or is this typical rhetoric? Two, if it is real, do you see it being enough to take the team beyond the three-win season predicted by the pundits? There was definitely a circle the wagons vibe when the team returned in January following that exodus of players to the portal. Well, that's all fine and dandy in the winter, the spring, even the summer. What happens when you face adversity in the fall? I can't say I have a feel for this team in that sense. It's not this strong overriding theme like we had in the summer of 2016. So it really is going to come down to what type of improvement we see from quarterback play and in the offensive line play more than, I think, team unity. Uh, team chemistry is is a good thing, and it's it's not to say that it's not important. But when you're winning, your team unity is always going to look really good because it's fun to win. And when you're struggling, that's when you're going to have issues uh, with people picking apart your team leadership. And so, um, I don't know if you can really answer that. Again, it's not this group of seniors. There are some seniors on the team, but I haven't gotten the sense that this team unity is going to lead this team to a, a bunch of wins over what we've seen. Uh, from recent teams. 
At BucketSense88 on Twitter asked, which player on the current roster do you believe has the best chance of being drafted into the NFL? I'm going to go with Casey Roddick. Not necessarily. He's got two years of eligibility left. I don't necessarily know if he's going to be leaving after this upcoming season, but just the way that he's transformed his body this offseason, having a full offseason, you know, he was doing dealing with myocarditis after having COVID last offseason, got cleared right before camp, had a fast, couldn't work out pretty much all offseason. So uh, that's a guy that I, I really expect to be to do good things for the Buffaloes this year. Um, it was actually something that I reported on recently on buffstampede.com following the spring semester, the CU player that actually got the highest draft grade from scouts was Janaz Jordan, a defensive lineman that has played some, not a ton at CU. He did start some games in 2020, didn't play as much last year. I was a little bit surprised to hear that. Um, and, and I'm told by my sources that Janaz Jordan's expected to have a pretty big role in the team this year. So I don't know how much I'm buying that at this point in terms of Janaz Jordan being having the best chance of being drafted into the NFL on this team, but uh, I don't get paid to make those decisions like the scouts do. And, and that's who they picked. NY Ski Bum asked, does Carl Durrell survive a three win season? Does Rick George survive a three win season? Well, Rick George's contract runs through June of 2026 and I haven't heard any rumblings of CU brass being frustrated with him. So I'd say yes to the latter. Not Asher on Durrell. I'll just say it would have to be a pretty ugly season in order for him to get fired in 2022. Movie Buff on Buff Stampede asked, what do you expect the ratio to be of Buffs fans to Falcon fans for the game in Colorado Springs? Will the Falcons pass for more than five times in the game? Air Force attempted 12 passes when they visited Boulder in 2019, so I guess I would take the over there. I haven't done a deep dive on Air Force's projected quarterback situation, and I honestly don't know how many folks they draw to most home games. So I'm not a, uh, a good person to predict the ratio. I do know CU's ticket allotment was under 3,000, but I'm sure a lot of Buffs fans will get tickets through the, through the academy. I don't know. I guess 50-50. That would be my guess at this point. Aaron Lott 303 on Buff Stampede asked, Adam, do you think USC and UCLA leaving the conference for more money will be enough of a wake-up call to the CU president, regents, and administration to take football and athletics a little more seriously? Or the new CU president will make football more of a priority? I listened to a podcast recently that talked about how in the late 80s and early 90s and early 2000s, there were cranes and construction all over campus on CU due to increased enrollment and the additional funds being brought in due to success of football. seems like a pretty simple ABC scenario in which you invest in football, football wins, which equals more resources for the academic side of the university to upgrade, expand, etc. Well, obviously the athletic department has its own budget, but yeah, when you have football success, you get a lot more people that are interested in applying for your university, you'd certainly think that would be clear, but it just hasn't been the case with CU administration. One of the most outspoken regents against athletics in my time covering the buffs, Jack Kroll, actually works in the admissions department. So it does defy logic. I haven't seen any substantive signs to signal that that's going to be changing 
there is a new president. He attends sporting events. Uh, he's spoken with recruits that are on visits. But we haven't really seen him come out and truly stand on a table and support athletics the way diehard CU football fans would want. There's some very easy fixes that could help the athletic programs out from an academic side without really compromising your academic integrity as a university. It's way too long to break down on this podcast, but if you're a Buff Stampede subscriber and haven't read it yet, Google substantial challenge CU faces with bringing in transfers. Okay, that's going to be a lot to remember to Google. Um, Well, maybe you're sitting by a computer right now. Just Google that. It'll take you to a breakdown I put up, which shows why CU can't utilize the transfer portal the way a lot of their FBS peers can. And then you just look at one example from recently, the fact that Bobby Clintman does not get admitted into CU and lands at Wake Forest and is going to go play basketball there. I mean, that's just beyond ridiculous. He was a, a qualifier and uh, I don't know. I could spend a whole podcast ranting on this subject. Buffonius on Buff Stampede asked, with NIL here, does having a great recruiting staff matter? Will there be NIL coordinators in the future? With the halves of college football, you do have these large collectives. And so the NIL coordinators are the big name boosters for those programs, even with the lawlessness that is college athletics in the NIL era, you still can't have an actual position in the athletic department that would be an NIL coordinator. So that has to be done through the boosters. But yes, having a great recruiting staff absolutely matters. Again, you can't fish in that pond of top-level prospects that are going to get the big figure NIL deals, but you still need good evaluators and coaches that can convince those kids on that next year to commit. At Buffs underscore culture on Twitter asked, why has Colorado not offered top in-state prospects Bayfall or Asani Diop? This is a basketball question. And actually CU has offered Diop and they are in his final eight. They're hoping to get him up on campus for an official visit in September. He is one of their primary targets for 2023. Bayfall was just not going to cut it academically and so they weren't going to waste a whole lot of time there. At You're a Cat on Twitter asked, one, do you like cats? Number two, if not, why don't you like cats? Definitely the most random question I think we've ever gotten asked on this podcast. Don't dislike cats, but I don't necessarily love cats. Uh, we're definitely a dog family here. We've got two dogs, no cats. I don't know. Cats are just peculiar creatures to me. No offense to cat lovers out there. I don't really know what else to add here. Movie Buff on Buff Stampede asked, what do you think is the most Colorado food? What would you recommend people visiting try? Colorado food. Green chili is the first thing that pops in my head. Frankly, Colorado is not a cuisine mecca, in my opinion. When I travel to other cities, I usually find food spots that I would put above what you can find here. Part of that is that I love seafood. I do like Ocean Prime and Larimer Square, definitely pricey. We've only gone there a few times for that reason, but have had a couple amazing meals there. Blue Island Oyster Bar in Cherry Creek is another good spot. Those are really the only two spots I have found that kind of satisfies that seafood craving. 
I used to love taking people from out of town to the Med in Boulder. Super disappointed when they closed their doors during the pandemic. Um, now I guess I probably gravitate towards taking them to the sink or the dark horse just for the vibe and not having it be a basic atmosphere. Love the Jiffy Burger. The sink's food is pretty good. It's not amazing, but it's got a cool atmosphere. It's kind of an institution. Um, obviously, Village Coffee Shop is an awesome place to grab breakfast, the buff as well. So Boulder has some really good breakfast spots. We live close to Loveland. We love going to Scalzato's is a, is a solid Italian spot. Origins has got good pizza, like Luna's Tacos and Greeley. I don't spend a ton of time down in Denver anymore, so I'm not the best for food recommendations down there. Um, what am I missing here? If you're going down to, to the Springs for the Air Force game, Skirted Heifer is a very solid burger spot. The Rabbit Hole is a cool underground bar and restaurant my wife and I went to in the Springs on New Year's Eve this past winter. Got a great steak at a good price down there. So that's a spot I would recommend if you're heading down to the Springs. And lastly, got a question from Elrod. He asked, Adam, what's your best approach to getting into running? Start with small goals, but have some semblance of a plan. If you've never been a runner, sign up for a 5K a few months out. Get it in. If you're going to do that this year, get it in before the end of October, before winter weather comes. Get some AirPods, put together a, a great music mix, download Strava. You know, have fun competing with yourself. Don't worry about competing with others. Strava does a great job of tracking your progress and your personal bests. I started by running a mile when I was in college and, you know, that's transitioned over to 5Ks, to 10Ks, to half marathons. And it took me longer than it should have for me to run my first marathon. But now that I have my first marath full marathon in the books, and the pain of those last five, six miles has worn off here, I'm itching to, to run another one. I'm going to do a half marathon in Boulder in October going to do another half marathon in Las Vegas where they shut down the strip in late February. And then I'm planning to run the Colfax marathon in Denver in May. It's definitely a, kind of an addicting deal once you really get into it and, and start competing in some of these races. But you know, long distance running is not for everybody. You, you have to be willing to embrace pushing through pain on those real long runs. But yeah, Elrod, let me know if you sign up for a 5K. I'll, I'll run it with you. I'm always looking for an excuse to sign up for a race. All right, to apologize if I didn't get to your question, and I wish I could have spent even more time on those questions that I did answer on the podcast, but I've got to take off here. Look for more podcasts as we get into preseason camp. And uh, of course, I'll be doing those near daily videos, analysis videos with Brian Howell throughout camp. So and uh, before I sign off, if you haven't done so already, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. Thanks for tuning in.